So it is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, as the stereotype is, uh, a lot of people like to get together and uh, have a cookout, and I'll do a little bit of that tomorrow. Now, growing up, though, uh, there really wasn't any of that. We never really got together with anybody for Memorial Day. We never really cooked out at all. But there is one thing that most of the men in my family did every Memorial Day weekend. There was always a time to watch a war movie. We always had to watch a war movie. Now, uh, not too many weeks ago, I was watching an interview with a well-known actor, and he was talking about the problems that come with making war movies, even if they're based on things that actually happen. He says, well, in order to make a good movie, you have to tell a story. And when you tell a story, even based on real events, you have to say or do things that nobody did. You have to say things that nobody said. You have to go places nobody went in order to tell the story. He said, the second problem you have with war movies is that to find good actors, you typically have to find people at least in their late 20s, if not in their early 30s. And now the reason that's a problem is because the people who went and stormed the beaches of Normandy and the people who uh, battled the Battle of Midway or walked the, the jungles of Vietnam were not in their late 20s and early 30s, were they? They were 16, 17, 18 years old. And the problem with war movies is that if you watch enough of them, you get to thinking that the men and women who gave their lives were 30 years old, mature, and had life's questions figured out. When in fact, the reality is, they didn't. We don't have too many 16, 17-year-olds sitting, or an 18-year-old sitting here this morning. But think about looking at them and looking at where they are in their life and, and saying to them, now the fate of the free world depends on you. Now, last week we started looking at Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, it is the most structured and organized psalm. It covers the life of somebody who is walking with God. And we saw some foundational ideas because that first section is an introduction. And we saw that a walk with God is supposed to be arriving at a place of perfect holiness. And we saw that the path to get there was a path of perfect obedience. And we saw, as the author lays out, that even though we know the goal and we know the way, our experience with walking with God is that we can't do it. That it's going to be full of failures and shortcomings. Now, in our text today, we know that this is, begins really the conversation uh, that makes up the majority of the psalm. The writer is a young man. Now, we know this because he starts by asking, how can a young man cleanse his way? Now, I want to ask you a question. What kind of questions were you asking yourself when you were a young person? Let's say 16, 17, 18 years old. What were the questions that you were asking in your, in your life? Do you remember being that old? Do you remember the kind of passions you had, the things you laid in bed and you imagined were happening? Do you remember being poor in knowledge? That's not a slam for people who are young, but it's a reality, right? If you've only lived 16, 17 years old, there's still lots to learn, isn't there? Those of us who are a little bit older would say, yeah, there's, there's lots to learn. But when we're young, 
We have these passions and these energies and these desires to for life, and, and we're, we're beginning to think that someday our ship is going to come in. Now, let me be clear. This is not a sermon just for young people. While asking the kind of questions we see here are the kind of questions, asking this question, I should say, is a question we should be asking at the commencement of our life. It is not the only time we should ask this question. In fact, I would say to you that as we get older, or at least this is what I have found, it's very easy to stop asking, am I walking the right way? It becomes very easy to just assume that I am. So I have four things, or, four, or three ideas, sorry, three ideas in this text, and I have three points for you this morning. The first thing that he lays out here, number one, is that what God has said matters more than experience. Number one, what God has said matters more than experience. Verse 9, he says, How shall a young man cleanse his ways? And he gives two, that, that speaks to two specific ideas. When you're asking a question like that, the first way he's asking the question is, All right, how do I do this? How do I live my life in such a way that I am clean from defilement? He wants to know, how can I go the right way so that my life is free from foolishness? How can I grow up and I begin to become an adult? How can I do that and not participate in things that are wicked? Or we can think of it this way. What do we ask our kids as they grow up? What are the questions we ask them? What kind of friends do you have? Are you thinking about what kind of friends you have? We ask them, what are you up to? What kind of grades are you getting? Are you participating in an activity? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go when, you're, when you graduate? What are you going to be when you grow up? That's the question the author is asking. He's saying, how do I go forward in a way that doesn't waste my time, isn't foolish, and is free from defilement? He's asking that question as a young, if you want to think of it, a young believer who wants to walk through their life in a way that, that they reach the goal of walking with God. But there's a second idea behind this question. It is an idea that he has already experienced the fact that he sins. He has already made himself unclean. He has already done things that are wrong, that are foolish, and are sinful choices. And anybody who's over the age of 25 will hopefully admit, yep, that was me. I didn't get very far into life before I made a wrong choice, made a foolish decision, or I made a sinful choice. You see, what the author is saying is, how? Because he sees an inward bent. I, I drift easily into defilement, into foolishness, into sinful choices. It's not easy to know and to choose the right thing every time. You see, the same passion when we're young, the same passion that drives us to want to be teachers and doctors and police officers is the same passion that drives us to lie and to steal and to be foul-mouthed and to be immoral. So it's not just that he's asking the question, I want to know how to get there. He's asking the question, how do I stop Failing to get there. How shall a young man cleanse his ways? Now, he answers the question. 
by taking heed according to God's word. Now you have to remind yourself, if this is Daniel, and I've suggested that it is, that what he's talking about are just the first five books of the Bible. When he says, I'm going to take heed to your word, he is talking about what he has from God in that moment. Now, of course, today we have more. In fact, we have the totality. We have more revelation, yet we think to ourselves it's not enough. Let me explain what I mean. What is one of the things that when we have to face a decision in our life, we have to deal with a problem, maybe it's not a negative thing, maybe it's just a decision that we have to make, what is the thing that is we, we lean into the most? And I would suggest to you from, from, from just times of talking with people that the thing that is easiest to lean into is experience. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, we can allow our past issues and our past, promise, uh, past problems and our past traumas to be our guide. We can say because we experienced this in the past, our current decision is going to be this. We don't consult God's word. We say to ourselves, well, this is what happened last time, so this is what I'm going to do to make it this happen this time. And unfortunately, we begin to teach our young people, we begin to teach our children that the way they make decisions, or the only way they're going to ever be able to make decisions, is with some experience. But we know better than this. We know better. Because if you had a negative experience with somebody of a certain ethnic group, we understand that it is wrong to spend the rest of our life thinking to ourselves that every person in that group is that way. We know that experience, leaning into experience has its flaws. That because we in, interact with men who are a certain way, we have that experience. It's not that experience that we should be leaning into when we make decisions. Experiences are not authoritative. Now, the second way I mean this is that we can learn and we can lean into our current experience, meaning we're going to lean into how we feel right now. This is where our society is. That authority is found in experience. If this is what I'm experiencing in this moment, this must be what is true. If this is what I'm feeling in this moment, this must be the authority in my life to make decisions. And what the author is saying, if I'm a young person, I can't lean into the experience of what is going on in my life right now. The authority that I'm supposed to be leaning into is God's word. Let me maybe give you an illustration. Years ago, we were sitting, my wife and I were sitting in church at another church in West Virginia. And uh, this older couple, probably in their 80s, were sitting in front of us. And after the service was over, they got up. And we hadn't interacted with them at all. They turned around and looked at us. We were, at that time, probably in our mid-20s. And they said to us, boy, if we could have what you have. And I, what do you mean? 
boy, if we could be young, I could use all of this experience and I could do it so much better this time around. Authority was just experience. But the young man said, he says, if, if you're trying to figure out which direction to go, or you're trying to figure out how not to fail, you have to take heed to God's word, his word. What God has said matters more, has more authority than what you are, what you have, and what you are experiencing. Number two this morning, what God has said is worth more than your heart's desire. It is worth more than your heart's desire. Verses 10 through 11. The psalmist twice speaks to God about what's going on in his heart. Jesus tells us that what is going on in our heart, that is where we keep what we really love. That's what we keep where what we really value. Now, it, it can be easy to conform. Take a situation, take a community, you can conform to that community. When I moved here, one of the first things people said was, you need a pair of cowboy boots. After I got my cowboy boots, somebody maybe mentioned, you need a bolo tie. After I got my bolo tie, and this hasn't happened yet, somebody says that I needed a hat. Don't have one of those yet. But it can be very easy to conform. But the reality is, Jesus says, whatever we truly treasure is actually going to eventually make its way out. And so you see the first in verse 10, the psalmist says, I have sought you with my whole heart. This is a tremendous idea. The heart of the psalmist is in pursuit of God. I want you to understand this. The wrong way to approach trying to figure out which way to go, the wrong way is to simply come to Scripture and try to find what rules you should and should not follow. Now they're there, There are some things the Bible is going to say, don't do this and do do this. But if that's all we're looking for, we're going to fail. The psalmist is saying, I have sought you with my whole heart. Our motivation should not be the desire to change. Our motivation should be a desire of obtaining God himself. See verses 10 and 11. We know that the psalmist is pointing out that there's no separating growing in God's word and growing in knowing God. You can't separate that. You can't get to know God without getting to know his word. Notice in verse 11, I have stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's saying, look, I have stored up these words in my heart so that I can keep out... What might separate you from me? Think about it this way. Down in New Orleans, they gather, they store up sandbags. Now they do this not because they think that the waters might rise and threaten the city. They do it because they know eventually it's going to happen. The waters are going to come up. There's going to be a threat to the city. So we better be prepared. That's the idea here. I hide your word in my heart to keep what might separate me from you away from the main part of my heart where I treasure things. Because the reality is it's very easy. We might treasure God for a little while. And this is what the young man might be seeing. He might start walking down that way. He might start pursuing 
God, seeking God, trying to walk with God. But if the right thing comes along, it might knock God out of being the treasure of his heart. I think the greatest threat to people who are under 30, who are still struggling to figure out who they are and and what they're doing, is that any given time a wind might blow the right way and knock God from the center or this treasure house of their heart. Now, that's what the idea, the philosophy is behind our Awana program. We're trying to have these kids to store up verses like New Orleans stores up sandbags. Every generation has to answer the question, what will be the treasure of your heart? And there will always be a battle for it. There is always going to be something trying to get and remove God from the center treasure of the heart. Always, no matter how much work you're doing, no matter how many things you keep out of your house, no matter how, how many movies you don't let your children watch, no matter how many places you don't let your children go, or how many things you don't let them do, or how many ways you let them dress, you can't keep it out. They will come, and things will come for your children's heart to knock God out. To remove him from his center. We know this. They'll give you an example. We know a horrible example of this. There was a Christian family who had a TV show. They had many, many children. They homeschooled. They didn't have video games. They didn't watch movies. They didn't listen to certain kinds of music. And one of those children became a sexual predator. Try as hard as you can. The thing that the psalmist is saying here, the only sandbags that ever work, is when we treasure God's word, meaning we are desiring seeking after God himself. But let's be fair. This is not just a struggle for young people. I would suggest to you, as my experience has been, as I have gotten older, it actually can become very, very hard at times to keep other things from becoming treasures of my heart. As I get older, I understand that older couple now. As things begin to ache and not work like they used to. We were watching, I don't know if you've ever seen this show, it's called Holy Moly. It's a miniature golf show where you don't just putt miniature golf, you might have to jump on a woodpecker, you might have to hang glide across the lake. But there is this one challenge where where there's this item that moves and you have to jump on it or you get a penalty stroke. Well, and we were watching an episode the other day and there was this young man who was probably 23, 24 and he gets to the platform and he jumps and he jumps on the platform that's moving and he, he gets what he needs to get and, and he celebrates. I mean, he looks flawless. This guy just jumped so far and he landed on his feet and it was just, it looked easy. Well, he was competing against, in that round, against a 62-year-old woman who had to do the same thing. And she ran, and she jumped, and she about sank about as fast as you can, completely missing the platform. In that moment, I'm betting, you th- I'm betting there is a temptation to think, boy, I wish I had the legs of a 23-year-old again. Things can easily Knock at our heart and try to remove God. 
And those things come around as we get older, as our health fails, as bills come, as people disappoint us, as pain comes, the things we're not ready for. And they will all come and they will try to displace God as the treasure of your heart. Or let me say it this way. And let me, under, let me help you understand. This is an illustration. It's nothing more than an illustration. Years and years ago, years and years ago, I was given a specific test in school. It was to understand where I was in my education. Now, to be fully transparent, the test showed that I struggled mightily in several areas of my education. I was behind where I should have been. But this test also showed that I had, I excelled at what is called reading retention. And literally my score was off of what they could measure. What it meant was I had a natural ability to remember with significant detail everything I read. Now for years of being in ministry, guess what's come in quite handy? Being able to remember pretty much everything that I've read. I didn't have to memorize verses because I naturally did it when I sat and read my Bible. But guess what I'm noticing as I get older? That if I want to memorize a verse, I have to do it on purpose. So those of you who are older, older than me, around my age... I understand, even with that giftedness, how hard it is to memorize a verse, that it's harder than it once used to be. But the truth that is being laid out here by the psalmist, even in his young age, is absolutely true. The only thing that keeps things out is when we memorize God's word in a pursuit of him. Or Jesus' illustration was what? We build our house upon the rock, so when the waves come, we stand firm. And that brings me to number three. What God has said should be delighted. What God has said should be delighted, verses 12 through 16. So the psalmist has said, this is, how we, this is the way to live. This is how we stay on the right path. This is what it's required. The psalmist says, as God said, the, the, the treasure of my heart should be God himself. And I protect that treasure by the memorizing and the knowing of his word. But now in the rest of the psalm, he almost entirely focuses on the concept of delighting. If you want to think of it this way, and it's probably dangerous for me to say this right close to lunch. The psalmist has said he needs to make a cake. And the psalmist has answered the question how to make a cake. And he's also established what he needs to do or how he needs to follow the recipe so that he makes a cake and not liver and onions. But the rest of the psalm is about having the cake and eating it. Verse 12, we have a blessing. He blesses because he has God. God's word has done it. It has gotten him more of God. Verse 13, the psalmist states that he is telling others about this. He is testifying that he has kept God's word. And what has been the result? He has gotten more of God. He's continuing with God's word and he's still gaining more of God. Verse 14, he compares his happiness to a pile of cash. I'm getting more of God. I could burn a pile of money right now and not even care. Now here I want to point out something. If this psalm is written by Daniel, it's very interesting how it lines up. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is described as being a young man from the royal family in Israel. And he's taken by force as a slave to Babylon. 
there as a young man, he is put with other noble young men and tested to see who is going to serve the king of Babylon. Now, a couple of things to consider here. Daniel was not a poor shepherd boy like David. He always had nice things. He'd always had been or had opportunities to be someone with riches and power. Now, but when faced, when valuing the position with the king of Babylon over valuing God's word, Daniel chose what? He chose God's word. Here, we have a young man who needs to answer the question in a time of crisis in Daniel's life, how shall a young man stay undefiled in the palace of Babylon? And his answer, to value God's word above everything else. The image here of verses 14 through 16 is that of delight, of wealth. It's a word that is used in scripture for wealth and position and even food. Daniel turned down the king's meat because it would have defiled him. Daniel delighted in his simple food because it made having more of God. He wanted more of God, more than he wanted these delicious smoked meats. How do we delight in the word of God? Well, we just look at the way we delight in other things. This year, my wife got me an ice cream cake for my birthday. We did not eat all of that cake on my birthday. So guess what I did for several weeks after my birthday? I delighted in that cake. You can do the same thing with God's word. What's another way we delight? Well, next year, if we celebrate 120th anniversary as a church, I assume there's going to be a lot of photos on the wall. And we will delight in pictures of new carpet going, going down or a new building going up, or we'll see photos of those who are no longer here. And we will smile, and we will delight. You can do the same thing with God's Word. You know what I see at the end of every school year on social media? Pictures after pictures of Children, as parents post these pictures and say, look what my kid did. I recognize what they were able to accomplish this year. You are delighting in your children. You can do the same thing with God's word. My sisters used to tease me about the fact that I always ate really fast, and they would tell me to slow down, enjoy your food. Some of us need to slow down and enjoy God's word. But we don't have to just delight in the word itself. We, we actually even delight the idea here in the byproduct of the word. When the word is being sought and it being obeyed, it creates delightful relationships within a church or, or a marriage. It creates a delightful relationship between children and parents, governments and its citizens. We should delight. If you have one of those marriages or you have one of those relationships with your children... Delight in the fact that God's word has developed that for you. It will create delightfulness for us in our life. James tells us that division and broken relationships in a local church or in a family or in whatever are when people begin to seek their own and not the things of God. We know that a church community can become a delight when it is a church community that wants to know God, who's seeking him through his word. So we began with the question, how shall a young man cleanse his way? And the answer, by taking heed to God's word. To seeking God himself with a whole heart. 
Jesus said the same thing when he was on the earth. He said to his disciples, I am here to do the will of the Father. The sinless perfection of Christ, his life, shows us what the psalmist is saying here. How does one keep from being defiled? By taking heed to God's word and seeking God with the whole heart. Jesus treasured his father more than anything else. And that's why he, when he, sat, he went to the garden, he would say, Lord, let the, or Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours. Jesus delighted in the word. And he asked why his father and mother would look for him anywhere else but beside the temple. So then, when Jesus says, come and follow me, he calls us to do what he did. To make the word of God his teacher. To value God's word above all other treasures. To delight in God's word in every way. To ask and answer the question, how does a young man cleanse his way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I just pray, Father, that it would, be, uh, it would go out into our hearts. And I pray, Father, that your word, uh, we would value it more than any other treasure. And I pray, Father, your word would have an authority in our life that is far beyond experiences. And I just pray, Father, we would be a people who delight in your word and what your word brings about. We thank you for these truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.